Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for all your support. I just am so grateful and so humbled by all your correspondence. I just got another Federal Express today. It's unbelievable, you guys. I'm being heckled by my own devices, which means that I always tell people to send FedExes to people and they'll read them. And of course, I'm getting the FedExes. But just everything, all the correspondence, texts, all the correspondence from Twitter and Facebook and everything has just been amazing. And I'm, I'm really, really grateful and thank you so much for everything. So much. All right. I'm very excited today because my guest is Stephen Mosco, a guy who is just a behemoth in the business and has the respect of so many different people uh, in the entertainment industry. And I'm fortunate to have him here for his first podcast ever. And as you know, I never know what I'm going to say. And so when I look at Steve, I can only think of one thing. After I've done all the research that I've done on this guy, one of the things you're going to find out about him, and I don't mean to be a spoiler here, is that he worked for 24 years for Sony. 24 years. How many people do you know that have worked 24 years for any company in the entertainment business? It's an amazing accomplishment. And I think to myself, how is it possible to stay in one place that long and to be able to navigate and to be able to be in a position where Everywhere you go throughout the years, there's always going to be somebody behind the scenes hiding behind the curtain or just a sniper somewhere trying to take you out. 
people who have other agendas, people always working towards trying to get the highest positions possible, and yet he's there, and he continues to be there, and he keeps continuing to excite the people he works with and, and have great relationships with them and help them get to the next level. And to me, that's an amazing, amazing accomplishment. And I think to myself, as I always do when I sit across from my guest, is what does it take to get to the next level? What does it take to be the kind of person like Steve? And I think for him, it just, a lot of doors get slammed in your face. You try to get to the next level. You finally get the opportunity to do something. And I think for him, he figured out a way to do more work than the next guy, be more productive than the next person at the company where he was at. And he formed relationships with people throughout one job that led to another job. And while he was at that job, when he went to the West Coast to Sony, he found a home where he could thrive, he could help people grow, and he could grow himself with the company. He took risks, but for the most part, I know for a fact that he really figured out a way always how to treat people nicely. He believes in treating people with respect and kindness, but he's also a smart businessman who knows how to get to the next level, knows how to take a company to the next level, and knows how to succeed. And that's one of the things I get from him when I look across from him. He is just that kind of person. It feels good being in his presence. It feels comfortable. You can tell he's a leader, and yet you can also tell he's the kind of person who you just want to be around and you just want to hang with. And I think for the most part, when I think of what it takes to get to the next level in this business, yes, there's many people in this business who aren't huggable and lovable. There's many people in this business who don't create great relationships with people. There's many people in this business who don't help others get to the next level. And yes, there are examples of those people making it. And yes, there are examples of those people getting to the next level and helping their companies get to the next level. But how do you want to get there? What person do you want to work for? Do you want to work for the person who you walk through the hallways and you're walking on eggshells never knowing if you're going to be fired? Or do you want to work for the guy who inspires you to be the best representation of yourself? And to me, that's all you need to know. And so my message, if it's not obvious already, is if you can just figure out a way to follow that kind of path that this man followed, I think you'll have the chance at the kind of longevity, the kind of loyalty, the kind of long-term company and great career that Steve Mosco has. Okay, here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Uh, undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air!
Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very, very excited today about my guest, Stephen Mosco. This guy is unbelievable, a heavyweight in the business. We got him. And without further ado, I'm going to give him the introduction that he deserves. And after it's all over with, he will slip out of his coma. All right, a native of Baltimore and one of seven children, Steve Mosco is one of the most famous and powerful personalities in the world of television. It is during a school trip on the shoot of the show It's Academic that Mosco had revelations and knew from then on that he wanted to spend the rest of his life in the TV business. He graduated from the University of Delaware with a Bachelor's of Arts degree in Communications, and his grandfather was a coal miner, and neither his father nor his grandfather ever went to college. All throughout college, Moscow had a job and worked hard to pay for his education. From 1983 to 87, he became a sales manager for a local channel in Philadelphia, WTAF-TV, and from 88 to 91, was vice president and station manager of the Philadelphia station WPHL-TV. He joined Sony Pictures and came across the country to Los Angeles in 1992 as vice president of the Western Region for Columbia TriStar Television Distribution. Throughout the years, he held several senior management positions until he was named president in 2000 and became chairman in 2015. Despite Sony Pictures being the only major studio with no broadcast network as a partner and with considerably less shows in production than other major studios at the time he took over, Moscow managed to generate well over 50% of the studio's income and turned Sony Pictures Television into a major player in the industry before he left the company in 2016. During his memorable 24 years at Sony Television, Moscow oversaw some of the best shows in television history, including The Shield, Outlander, Blacklist, The Goldbergs, Preacher, Better Call Saul, Masters of Sex, Wheel of Fortune, Jeopardy, and of course the hit show that won 16 Primetime Emmy Awards and two Golden Globe Awards during its five-year run. And I'm talking about the amazing show, Breaking Bad. Moscow also oversaw Sony's streaming service, Crackle, which distributes the hit show, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, from Jerry Seinfeld. Additionally, he was responsible for running Sony's international TV business, which boasts channels in more than 150 countries. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, a man I'm honored to have sitting across from me. Steve Mosco. Thank you. Thank you for pronouncing my name right. Thank you for the amazing introduction. Oh, no problem. Did I, <laughs> I did I pronounce it correctly? Yes, you did. I mean, it's pro again, it's it's the most mispronounced and misspelled name in history. I've learned to live with it. The other thing is it's it's based off my name Steve is off, you know, St. Stephen. So everything gets misspelled, but I, it doesn't. Who cares? I will say that the funniest story ever was when I checked in to a hotel in in Moscow, <laughs> <laughs> my 
Moscow and I told them my name and there was a brief kind of like, look, like, what are you talking about? Like, why are you messing with us? And I had to show my car. It was the whole thing. It was funny. Have you ever had this really important meeting? Let's say there was this huge star you were trying to be in business with and you're trying to get a show going at Sony and then they say, oh, wow, Steve Moscow. <laughs> I've learned, I've worked for people that pronounce it wrong for years. I, I just stopped caring. I really don't care. What do you care about now? Well, since I turned 60, obviously I want to stay around for a while. So um, I, I enjoy kind of this notion of being able to do things throughout my life and stay active. So um, since I left Sony, one of the things I have done is maintain my morning schedule. I always I get up every morning at 4.15. I'm out of the house at 4.30. You know, I got up this morning at 5 o'clock and I felt like a hero and you beat me. Now, there are people like Bob Iger and others that do this too, which is interesting. I, I set two alarm clocks, so I have my phone and my clock. I actually do this mental trick uh, where I set my clock is turned ahead two and a half hours. So when I see my clock in the morning, I see 6.30, which doesn't feel so bad. I never look at it when I go to sleep. So I just trick my brain into thinking it's later than it is. But I, so anyway, so in the workout routine is I drive into Santa Monica, I do an hour of spinning. Um, then I, I drive over a little ways and go do an hour of Pilates. I try to do that every day. In between that or during the day, I try to meditate 20 minutes and then I throw in yoga once or twice a week. I try to watch, I don't drink anymore. And not that I was a big drinker. Um, so my priority is staying healthy. Uh, I very dedicated father. I've been married 37 years, which, you know, people look at me and go, oh, so you're the one, you know, that's married this long. My philosophy is happy ex-wife, happy life. <laughs> I say you're all, and we had this conversation with my wife last night. I say you're only as happy as your unhappiest child. And, you know, so I've got three kids and they're high on the priority list, if not the most important thing. My son, Matt, went to SC and he, um, he uh, went to Chapman and got his master's. Uh, he works for Adam Sandler at Happy Madison, Doug Robinson. Very, very happy. My middle son, Brian, lives in Shanghai, lived there for four years. He's the happiest son. He's pretty happy. Yeah, no, he's a great kid. He, he moved over after college, but he works for AEG and uh, in their live entertainment business. And then my daughter last night um, committed to school, which I can't name because it's not official, but uh, she's a senior at Oaks Christian in Westlake Village. My son just looked at Oaks Christian and he's a baseball player. It's the best. I mean, I'm very involved in the school. I only wish as a kid I had seen that school because it is, it's Pepperdine in Westlake. It's phenomenal. The facilities are great. I mean, look at the coaching staff. So these, does it get better? I mean. I, I'm from Baltimore. I used to hear the stories about Cal Ripken used to coach at Gilman in Baltimore. It's a big private school. And he would walk out and stand in the third base coach's box. Well, you can imagine every kid that grew up in Baltimore, you know, plays this school and they look and see Cal Ripken. That's worth at least a run a game. <laughs> I highly recommend Oaks Christian. It's a phenomenal school. So what's important to me, it's, it's staying healthy. I've spent this last, you know, few months kind of re-energizing my you know, my uh, my battery, so to speak, caught up a lot of family things, been working a couple of interesting business ideas, which hopefully will take off fairly soon. But uh, and I probably have a greater love of the business I've ever had and more energy than I've ever had. I think the next 10 years hopefully are better than the last uh, 
few decades. So we'll see what happens. Who else can you name that have been with a company for 25, 24 Not many. Years? <laughs> Not many. How did you do it? I think our audience is always fascinated by the navigation. You might not have had the goal to be president when you started in your first year, but as you start moving, things start happening, and there's other people who are around you who presumably want the same thing you do. And you have to figure out how to navigate while there's certain people behind you taking shots at you and trying to break your legs. If you had to say what your philosophy is of how to make that work, knowing that so many people behind your back, they're against you, how did you do it? I think, first of all, I never in my life imagined, like, as you, if you said to me, when you're at this age, you will be in Los Angeles, you will have done the following things, and you will still be relevant, you'll still be trying to do other things. I mean, I grew up in a small town. It had no money, you know, pay my way through high school, pay my way through college, low expectations. People didn't think I was a college student. I mean, I mean, I got the whole, I can give you the whole story, but I think in the end, I had a very strong work ethic, which came from my parents. My grandfather was a coal miner, worked in the coal mines. You know, I guess we had seven kids. My dad and mom were just, just woke up every day and kept moving forward. So... From an early age, I had that going for me, which I think means something. Second thing is, I always loved the business. I mean, I've since I was junior in high school, when I, you know, I've told the story where I walked into a TV station, saw a taping of the show, It's Academic. I mean, I remember the moment, I can actually smell the smell now, but I smell, I walked into the station, I just said, this is what I want to do with my life. Some way, shape, or form, I want to do this with my life. So then when I got out of college, you know, I, I've spent 13 years after college working in TV stations and at my last job, I actually owned part of and ran a TV station in Philadelphia. So I, I actually, in my 30s, I thought, wow, I've done everything I ever wanted to do. So I said to my wife at the time, and my, my son Matt was, I think, in first grade and Brian was three years younger. I said, we, I have this opportunity to move to Los Angeles. And she goes, let's go, you know. So I came out here thinking like, almost like I have a free pass because I'd done everything I wanted to do. The idea of working for a studio was like unheard of. Uh, I went in the syndication side of the business. And once I got in, I thought, wow, I, maybe I can go further than I thought. And um, I just took great interest in learning every piece of the business. I mean, you're in, you know, in a job like syndication, you learn about production, you understand marketing, you know the clients, you know, you, know, you just, and you're getting deals done and you're just involved in all aspects of it. Traditionally, the syndicated model was always about either a talk show or a game right. show. I think that's changing, but for the most part, it still remains yeah, the same. Yeah, it still remains. But I just, to answer your question specifically, I just, I tried to always do what was right for the company and for the people and, you know, put that first. And like I said, I think I was pretty hard charging, but I also took care of the people that were for me, and I never like to say that word that way, but I think people like to be around people that are gonna build a successful team and people who are gonna acknowledge success of people within the group. And so I had a lot of great people I work with over the years that just continue to perform. And uh, as the business evolved, I moved through different parts of the company. Um, you know, it just always seemed to be the natural move. So- uh, You know how nobody, there's no classes 
about how to manage people <laughs> right. that I know of. There's not one executive that I know of that's in a position of power no. that's taken a class. How do I manage my employees? But I know how I want to be treated, and I wouldn't know what motivates me. And there's two schools of thought on this. One is, I scare the shit out of you so much, you're afraid of your losing your job every day, so you come into a fear-based environment. It's like, I don't want to lose my job. Blah, blah, blah. That's one way. The other way, which I found to be more effective, which is my style, which was try to figure out a way to get people to do 10 to 15% beyond what they think they can do and empower them to do more and kind of make the evaluation process ongoing. So there wasn't a big surprise at the end of the year, hey, you're doing a shitty job or you're doing a great job. It was like in process. So like it's correcting along the way and acknowledging along the way. And um, I think people appreciate that. And I, and I also think in a creative environment, you can't have a fear-based environment and then expect to deliver creative excellence. You just can't. If people have fear in their brain, fear doesn't, I don't think fear creates the best way to think creatively. I just don't. But does it bother you that there have been successful leaders of companies that you know are fear-based. Jeffrey Katzenberg, when he'd come from his breakfast meeting, he'd put his hand on the top of the cars to feel which ones were warm, <laughs> which ones were cold, and the ones that were warm were people who weren't working as hard as the ones that were cold. I have all these idiotic traits I had too, but uh, and in Jeffrey's defense, he wouldn't exp he wouldn't have his people do anything he wouldn't do. But the bet, by the way, the best one I heard about those days was when it. Um, there was a sign in the parking that said, when you come into the office, don't forget to turn your lights off. <laughs> if you read the subtlety of that, it's pretty good, right? When you come into the office, don't forget to turn your lights off. <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, look, we all have our little tricks. Give us an example of what you would say to somebody <laughs> if you had a review with them and they were exceeding expectations. They were not only at their 15%, the guy who's at 15%, he's still over delivering, but he's where you think he should be. Then there's the guy who's just doing his job. And there's a fourth one, the guy who's underperformed. Right. So how do you handle each situation when you sit with somebody and inspire them to be better? What, well, I'll tell you what I didn't do, which I think is important is, and I do this with my, my I never do this with my kids either, by the way, is never compare one to the other. In other words, I'd never go to my kids and say, well, Matt, Brian's doing this. Why aren't you doing that? that that's because you have to treat every individual for what they are and what they can do because it's everybody's different. But I, it was just basically an honest conversation. There wasn't any magic trick to it. If, if someone was doing great, I would say, you know, man, you've had a great year. I remember my guys, the guys, Zach Van Emberg and Jamie Ehrlich, uh, you know, when, when they had Breaking Bad or they came out with Blacklist, it's like, it's a simple conversation. Great job. Here's the good, that's the good news. Fantastic. Here's the bad news. Everybody's going to expect you to keep, you know, you're going to keep doing this, you know. So how do we keep this momentum going? What's, how do we keep making this thing get bigger and bigger? So those conversations were easy, but they, they ultimately led to, like anything else in the entertainment business, when you have a level of success, if you don't maintain it, you can quickly fall to the wayside. So that was that conversation. Not with them specifically, but in general. Sticking with them for a sec, it's always an interesting choice giving a job to two people when either one is higher than the other. And I think most of the time that doesn't work. At the time, uh, Russ was overseeing and Russ had talked about transitioning into, you know, a production deal. And 
and Zach and Jamie had been getting, you know, some interest and I thought they were fantastic. So one, one thing heated up in particular and I went to Russ and said, look, you want to go do this production thing? Let's make that happen. Uh, he said, fine. Ironically, this all happened like in a day. So, uh, I, so that happened. And then uh, I went to Zach and Jamie and I said, look, uh, and they were both very young. So they were in their early 30s. And uh, we were, as a, at the time, I was just kind of been, you know, a couple of years into, you know, fixing the TV business and getting it out of that hole. I thought, look, these guys have amazing uh, potential. They're young, but I just saw how talented they were. And I figured, you know, I'd rather bank on somebody on potential like this versus hiring somebody that's been, that's been doing it for a while. Because we had to put people in there that didn't, hadn't really hit the hurdles yet, you know, and, and they had to break new ground. So they went in and I think the fact that they were earlier in their, you know, it was early in their career and then it was a huge job that it made sense for both of them to have these, this partnership. And I remember saying to him day one, I said, look, you guys have to go at it. You have to disagree. Just don't do it in front of me. When you come and talk to me, make sure you figure out, because I need you guys to be one person, one unit to both me and to the outside world. So don't ever let their wedge be get between you because that, that would be bad for everybody. So, you know, they whenever they we had conversations, they had already gone through their process. So when they talked to me, uh, it was pretty much about what what's the right thing to do. But no, they've done a terrific job. Because you look even in creative situations. If you look at Steve Levitan and Christopher Lloyd, things don't always go the way they're supposed to go. Each one of them runs a single show and then the other one runs the other one. And they're not allowed to interfere in anything they do. And it's this weird thing. I asked Steve when he did the podcast here, I said, why don't you just take one year off and give him one year and then have more time and less aggravation? And he says, well, that's not how it works. You know, it's just certain things like you can't explain the outside world. They just work. You know, it's the universe. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. You're the kind of guy when I'm across from you, I feel calm i feel happy i feel like you get your hand off my leg sorry <laughs> i feel um i knew there was a reason why i felt that way i'm sorry i didn't by the way you so remind me of my buddy gary shanley it's so great for you to compare me a fraction <laughs> to one of the greatest he was one of the most complicated amazing human beings ever and i loved him 
And God, you know, and it's just, it's great to watch what Judd Apatow has been doing and kind of remember Gary and, uh, but I will tell you, ironically, of all the people that helped guide me through like days when I first took over, you know, Sony's television business, there was one person that gave me like those calming words. It was Gary, you know, and because he was he could relate everything to what he did in his career to what I was dealing with. And there were two separate worlds, you know, but it's just facing never be, you know, never be afraid to fail and try things and you know, just have confidence. I just like, there's a lot of, you know, you think of us and what you're, what, when you're a standup, you know, it's like being in the restaurant business, you know, I mean, a restaurant business, every plate of food better be good. Cause they don't care about the last one. They care about the one in front of them. And if you're a standup, they really don't give a shit about the last thing you did. They want to know you're funny now. And as an executive, you're only as good as your last hit or your last fiscal year, all those things. But, um, no, I I, I'm, I appreciate you saying what you said. And I just, um, I, I'm a lover of life. I love people. I probably low tolerance of bullshit in people. I try to be as authentic as I possibly can. I feel grateful for the life I have. I love working with other people and helping other people share some of this knowledge. I begrudgingly recognize my weaknesses and know how to capitalize on my strengths. I try to be in the end, a decent guy. And it's, and there's a friend of mine that wrote a book, you know, last year I did the commencement speech at LMU. Oh, we're talking about Loyola Marymount University. And, um, you know, I had three tenets, which I talked about is not letting people tell you what you can and can't do, chase your dreams, but also it's okay to be okay to be nice. And a friend of mine, uh, Ron Shapiro wrote a book, the power of nice. And, uh, it's just a life changer because I think sometimes when I, when I walk through some of the agencies in town and I get it, there's this kind of mentality that you gotta be like a little bit of a prick and a little bit of an asshole and tough guy. And, and by the way, no question, this is a bare knuckle business. You gotta be tough, but that doesn't mean it's core. You can't be a decent, nice person. And actually it, it takes greater strength. And Gary taught me this too. Greater strength to be nice in a tough world and survive then it'd just be flat out, you know, whatever. But so uh, my friend, Tim Snyder, who's president of LMU calls me up and says, I, I want to ask you if you can would give the commencement at LMU this year. I said, wow, I, yeah, of course. So then when the panic mode about writing it, and I'm, I'm not a reader, I'm kind of a, put ideas on a piece of paper, kind of talk through it. But uh, anyway, uh, so I start sketching out my speech and getting it ready and I'm not feeling any pressure because I try to make it upbeat and lively. Anyway, I get this call from a friend of mine who says, holy shit, I, I'm driving down Lincoln and I see these banners on the signs and your picture's up there. I go, what are you, like, what are you talking about? Yeah, you giving the commencement or something. And I go, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I am actually. He goes, well, what's Clinton doing? I go, what are you talking about? Well, you've got like Clinton's face and there's your face. I go, I have no idea what you're talking about. So I called Tim up and I said, it's like, what, like, what's up? Like, what, like what? he goes, well, no, you're doing the graduate school and Clinton's doing the speech the day before. <laughs> I go, man, you gotta be kidding me. So now I've gone into like semi panic mode. Like, you know, I got <laughs> Bill Clinton doing Saturday and I'm doing Sunday. You know, so now I, I, the ridiculous part of my brain goes, to, okay, I'm going to do a better speech than Clinton, right? 
the greatest speech, speaker of all time. Fantastic speaker, right? Anyway, so now I'm like, so I get the speech already. So I'm trying to think like, how do I put this in a place where it like, it's funny? So I actually kind of made up the story where I said that, uh, there's truth to this actually, that I was talking to Seinfeld and said, uh, hey, I need some tips on, uh, you know, since you're so great with people like giving this commencement. But I got one little thing. I said, you may not be able to relate to this because, you know, but you have opening acts. So I got this, there's this guy who's not my opening act, but he's, he'll be what I'm compared to or how they compare my speech. And he's pretty good. He goes, well, who is it? I go, it's Bill Clinton. He goes, Bill Clinton, like Bill Clinton, the ex-president, he's the opening act. They said, well, he's not really opening act, but he goes, holy cow, he goes, he's named after a president. His middle name's Jefferson. I went this whole thing. And I will tell you this, I think the old, the fact that Clinton was speaking, they were made, made the best of me come out, but uh, yeah, it was a little nerve wracking and the kids loved it. So I just, uh, and they said it one, a couple people said it better, but uh, I'll leave that to the uh, people who watch both. When I think about if I were working for somebody and I never chose to want to work for anybody, <laughs> but if I did want to work, I'd want to work with you because you have that kind of feeling like everything's going to be okay. I still don't really know how it's possible to navigate like you did and make it work with so many people trying to take you down and how you advise the young people coming up as your team. They all can't move up together. So you don't share with anybody who's doing better. Let them figure it out. I always feel like people should know where they stand compared to other people and they should know and understand the trajectory of where they are and where other people right. are but they rarely seem to know i like to say like an anorexic looking in the mirror and thinking they're fat they don't really see the reality of the situation just like you might in your later years have figured out the things that maybe were your weaknesses so what were your weaknesses and how did they affect <laughs> you with your staff you know if you look at like i was you know the thing that always bugged me, I'll say it this way, uh, was the fact I always felt as though television wasn't given the proper credit uh, as, a, as an art compared to motion pictures. Now, years ago, that may have been true, but I think that um, today, I mean, I mean, I was talking to somebody today that saw a clip reel of like the best movies and the best TV shows. They went, they're all the same. They look as good, and they're. I mean, television right now is fantastic. The work being done is amazing. Yes, there are some shitty reality shows. Would you say this is the best place that television content has ever been in terms of scripted material? Yeah, oh, easily. What annoyed me every year, uh, what not annoyed me, but it's part of the business, is the fact that when you go through pilot season for the broadcast networks. You know, you go through this whole, you know, song and dance of, you know, developing ideas and writing scripts and shooting pilots. And, you know, you're casting the pilots at the same time and, it'll, you know, whatever. At the end of the day, you pick up whatever shows can fit in the schedule and you keep your fingers crossed and you premiere too many in the fall and you see what, what happens. What, what technology is allowed to have happen today is probably get more shows on the air that would have been sketchy in a, you know, otherwise scheduled world where the viewer can decide 
you know, whether they're good or bad. But more stuff's getting out there for people to sample and where they can choose what they like or don't like. And um, and they're done where they're, they're given the proper, you know, the right casting, what have you. So anyway, that's a little bit. But the answer to the question is there's some great stuff on broadcast TV. There's some great stuff on Netflix and Amazon, great stuff on cable, great stuff. It's in, I mean, everywhere you look, there's great program. And like I said, there's the, there's the normal shitty stuff. But every once in a while, you need to eat a glazed donut. You know, let's not pretend. I mean, we all pretend like every meal has to be, you know, a seven-course meal. I love, I mean, Wheel of Fortune Jeopardy, without a lot of hoopla in the press, day in, day out, delivers millions of people. And they're just shows people love to watch. And they're, they're, Harry Freeman, who produced them, is the best in the business. And um, so there's, there's great stuff everywhere, but every once in a while you need a little bit of stuff that's, you know, it doesn't have to be Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad, but the, the, it can be somewhat, somewhat a little lighter and maybe a little trashy. It's still enjoyable. First of all, um, one of the things that should be known to the audience is Sony was essentially Netflix without streaming before its time. <laughs> and I'll explain what I mean by that. Sony was the only and still probably remains the only studio without a network. So what does that mean when you don't have a network home? Well, I'll tell you. So CBS has their own production company, the company to help deficit the network. Everybody has their own thing so they can own a show outright so they don't have to be in the situation where one company owns half and the other owns the other half. But Sony was in a situation in order they had to buy their way into the television business. And I'll explain what I mean because he's looking at me like I'm insulting him. So they have a lot of money to spend. They have deep (laughs) pockets and they have to in order to bid for a project. They're they're bidding against essentially companies that they know they have a net. But Sony doesn't have a net. They just have their own company. So if they want to do a pilot or something, they normally, a lot of times, the network might say, we don't really believe in this as much as you do, but we're going to go forward with it if you deficit the whole thing. If you deficit the whole pilot, we'll pick up the pilot and we'll see what happens. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they might pay for half of it or part of it. But there have been times where the company, Sony, had to make that leap of faith and had to spend extra money to get in the game and to get that thing in front of people that they knew they believed in and could get picked up. The only the only thing I'd say to you is there, <laughs> this was we were on a budget. So and we had limited funds, probably the less money development wise than any other studio in town but we had more targeted i mean we were very targeted in our approach and i think again i think our team zach and jamie and their team were very good at that and i think the way we looked at it was more of a portfolio approach where you know we were in the and I, we looked at it financially different ways so the broadcast business was like a high-flying stock you know Huge risk, huge return. So Blacklist and those kinds of shows did very, very well. Um, but you take a bunch of hits to get to that point. Cable, a little more predictable. Most shows hopefully went to second year. Um, I will say this, that the reason I think we were successful in the cable business was our international sales team, you know, Keith Lagoy at the time, and now uh, did a great job selling this notion that the, the value of these cable shows, because they had virtually... Uh, motion picture casts, you know, they were fewer episodes, but 
the idea that these episodes were all going to run, they're going to be promoted was a huge selling point. So we viewed the business. So if the broadcast network success was a home run, cable could have been a double. Luckily for us, Breaking Bad was an upper deck home run. So we got so you can get that, but there's less risk. And then we were the first studio to really get involved in creating original programming for the Netflix of the world and Amazons. And we view that, you know, everybody, a lot of people complain, well, there's not, you don't get the upside and it's cost. But if you're managing your business properly and you look at like what that represents, it's predictable earnings versus, you know, some of these other things, you just have to manage a portfolio financially. And you're also managing creatively at that point. And what Steve's alluding to is the streaming networks like Netflix and Amazon and Hulu, their deals are completely different than the network right. deals. When he says there's no upside, like you're not going to buy a Learjet normally from a Netflix series or something like that. But what you're going to gain is respect <laughs> and a little bit of money Thanks. to buy one island off no, of Hawaii. But you, I would say it this way. When you buy bonds, you're protecting yourself from you know, this investment you're making in other high-flying stocks, whatever. So if you're big in investing in broadcast pilots, that's, you know, and you say, okay, that's a riskier business, but the upside's greater. If you know you've got these other series that are going to deliver X return, that's still good. Again, it's how you manage the business. There's that old expression, yeah, if it was so great, everyone would be doing it. But you guys were the only ones doing it. Right, and I, and I think it gets back to you know, again, you mentioned the no network thing. So for years, all I heard from people was, oh, you'll never succeed because, you know, if you don't have a network, you know, where are you going to put your shows? And we used to always laugh and say, well, we don't have a network. We've got 18 networks because we were doing original shows for a, a, lot, a number of networks. And what was interesting is it felt to me like a tipping point in all this was when we did this investor conference for uh, when Dan Loeb was, you know, hustle, you know, rattling the, sh the bushes that we had to present our story to the investment community and people saw the number of shows the number of networks and you know for years we, we had been saying that you know what was attractive about Sony was the fact if you're in the if you're a writer you can go sell to everybody and that's a pretty cool thing if you're if, if you're an idea generator to be able to go sell to the new platforms and the various networks and not be locked into one. So, look, you can argue this both ways that for some people, the predictability of, of having a deal with a CBS or, or ABC gives you a better chance of getting things, you know, on the air. But at the same time, they have the freedom to come up with ideas and present and pitch them to everybody and take advantage of new platforms. Depends on the person you're dealing with, but that's pretty empowering too. So... We certainly made it work. You, you do have to have people that are willing to buy into that strategy as well. Because I always used to say we had an entrepreneurial spirit within a corporation. Because, you know, <laughs> we had to come earn our keep every day and, and fight, fight, fight to get shows on the air. And, and by the way, it just wasn't getting them on the air. <laughs> the harder part was keeping them on the, on the air. You know, that was the trick. So, and obviously there's shows that you're developing every year and whatever they might be, let's pretend there's 10 of them and there's one that you feel the strongest about and the right. one that you feel the 10th strongest about. And the year that Breaking Bad was being developed, let's just say you had nine other projects that you were <laughs> developing that year, right. or whatever they were in your mind. 
when you got home at night and you sat in the fetal position on the couch, were you saying to yourself, this is the number one bullet I have in the chamber? Were you saying, this is my fourth or fifth best shot on this one? Right. Well, first of all, the, the reason I live in Westlake Village is by the time I drive home, I've forgotten everything I'm mad about. So <laughs> I'm usually not in the fetal position. One of the most underrated places to live. It's an amazing oh town. You got to check it out. It's incredible. It's, it's, we've lived there for 24 years, and it is the greatest place in the world to live. I've looked at so many places on the lake there, and I never pulled the trigger. It's great. But people don't want to make the drive every night. Anyway, so with Breaking Bad... No, I mean, I remember, <laughs> I can't say what it was, but I remember, you know, when uh, we were sitting in the green light meeting. And when he's talking about the green light meeting, what that means is they look over all the projects that they've developed and then they have to determine which ones they want to move forward with and which ones they don't want to move forward with. Right. So, you know, you go through the kind of checklist of, okay, seriously, like this is the show you want to develop and, you know, a guy with terminal cancer and, you know, <laughs> he's going to go sell crystal meth and, a, the star of the show is coming off Malcolm in the Middle, and you know Vince Gilligan had just left the movie Hancock with with uh, Will Smith, and you know on and on. And actually, the show originally was set up in San Bernardino, and you know it, it didn't work cost wise, so that's why I moved to Albuquerque. Who knew Albuquerque was actually going to become a character in the show? But no, the answer is we were so we were so desperate for a hit. But I can't tell you honestly that I thought this would be the one. We just thought, you know, and I give my guy, you know, Zach and Jamie credit. They really just kind of looked at it and said, yeah, we think Vince is a great writer. And it, it just felt like a good show. And, you know, I think we all thought, okay, you know, Terminal can't, I mean, how long can a show go and maintain its credibility when the lead character's got terminal cancer? You know, it's like we, we produced the soap operas. You know, you can bandage people's heads up and have them come out looking different, you know, all the time and no one cares. But this was, a, you know, this is the real deal. So, and what's really ironic is, you know, into the run, you know, AMC wanted to cancel it because, you know, they were out trying to sell ad sales, you know, about a, a show about cancer and drugs. And internationally for the first couple of years, it was tough. And there's actually a case study to be made, I think, that really talks about what happened. And it, it's, I don't know what could happen again, where there was, it was this kind of cult, more culty than anything early on. And when we made this deal to, you know, with AMC to kind of keep it going, we got the streaming rights. And once it went on Netflix at, you know, a couple seasons in, it took off because people caught up and then all of a sudden the original episodes airing on AMC, they got more popular and like everything worked. You know what I mean? It just worked. But as core, I mean, it is the, it was the greatest cast and Brian Cranston is one of the most phenomenal human beings ever. And if you look now, like looking back, you know, Brian went from being, you know, in Malcolm in the Middle and being, by the way, his best role to me was when he played, was in Seinfeld. But, uh, <laughs> Um, you know, and look where his career's gone, you know, Academy Award nominations and, you know, Golden Globes and Tonys and he, and he's a phenomenal, I mean, in this generation, he's one of the great actors and one of the greatest human beings you'll ever meet, you know, and not afraid. I mean, he could have gone after Breaking Bad and done a lot of things, you know, but he, he did some great movies. He went on Broadway and, and then Vince, I mean, I think Vince is one of the great writers of this generation. 
and uh, you know went on with you know with Peter Gould and do Better Call Saul and and Bob Odenkirk, who you look at what Bob did, you know, as in early in his career, and now he's one of the best dramatic actors on television, and and you know Michelle McLaren, who was a great action director. I mean, she's doing a bunch of great things. They're just one after another, like great people, you know, and I think I look at like the team of our people at Sony. I mean, we'll always have that. And rarely in your career, you have to look back and say, man, I was part of that. And for me, I mean, this is one thing I often sit back and go like, how the hell did this happen? You know, where I was fortunate enough to be involved in things like Wheel of Fortune Jeopardy, which, you know, is two of the greatest iconic shows in the history of television. You know, they're still as relevant today as they were years ago. To be involved in Seinfeld, which is one of the great comedies of all time, and being involved with Breaking Bad, one of the great dramas of all time. And I never, ever, I mean, to be, to be just even talk about it, I feel very fortunate that that was part of what I did. And, um, you know, like I said, and I think going forward, I could take all those things I learned from that and hopefully carry on to, you know, the next thing. Hey everybody, I am really, really excited. We have a new sponsor, AquaTrue. This is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water. And if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over a hundred chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer causing and have lead in them. So you can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site and if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. All right, I want to go way, way back. Take me back to where you grew up, what the socioeconomic dynamic was, and what was your first inspiration to getting into this crazy business? Wow. So, uh, I, so I grew up in Maryland, a little town called Bel Air. Um, not, when I tell people from Bel Air, it's not that Bel Air. But no, we lived in a... We had, came from seven kids, Catholic family, never had a lot of money. I, you know, my grandparents, there was a time where we had seven kids living in the house. Uh, my grandparents, my mom and dad, and I think our house was 2,700 square feet. But uh, I didn't know any different because like, I kind of lived in an area where we were all kind of the same. Like I said, I had a job since I've had every shitty job known to man. And... Uh, well, you started working very young. I was mowing lawns every week in the summer, and I was a painter, and I worked at a uh, worked at Ridge Lumber Company, driving a truck and loading lumber. 
I was a janitor at the Methodist Church in town. I worked at Friendly's Ice Cream. I worked at the shoe <laughs> store in the mall. I worked construction. I mean, literally, I mean, I worked at a janitor in my high school. You know, they're very humbling, humiliating jobs. And the weird thing is, you know, as a kid, I hated them because I never had money to go out on dates. We had like, we had the family station wagon. You know, there was no opportunity for, you know. Getting any action. <laughs> But the weird thing is I look back on that time, I go, man, like what, I, there's no reason to be bitter about that because it actually, all those things I did when I was younger, maybe who I am today. So I'm grateful for that. But we, you know, we, very Catholic family, went to church every Sunday, went to Catholic school through, uh, you know, through high school. Well, let me tell you, the one thing I will say to you, I, I talked to somebody, but I was actually saying this to somebody today. All the baggage and bullshit people take with them from their childhood. You know, if the worst thing is like I had a couple shitty jobs that, you know, I, and I wish I were going on dates or did things. I mean, that's not a problem. The pro when I look back, I hear people have problems with people who had like horrible parents who were either alcoholics or beat them. I had the best parents. They did a great job. They loved us every day, hugely supportive. Do I wish we had more things? Yes. Did it turn out okay? Turned out great. So, like I said, I think I'm, you made a very nice reference earlier. I think part of that's because my parents are probably still sitting on my shoulders. And, um, you know, and the irony is my mom and dad, you know, again, good role models in terms of marriage too. They were married for 100 years. They died two days apart, three days apart. So they're, they're um, my mom died. My mom died the day before Michael Jackson died, and my dad died that Saturday. So Sunday, we had the viewing, and there were two caskets, and the church had two caskets, and two caskets went on the ground. It was surreal. But the one, I'll tell you the greatest story of all time, is um, right after that, I went to this uh, event, and uh, I saw Brian, I was talking to Brian Cranston, and he was with Robert Wool, a comedian, and... Uh, Brian goes, Steve, how, how you doing? I go, Brian, I'm doing okay. I feel like this was a blessing and my parents, this was meant to be. He goes, wow, that's that's a good way to think of it. And Robert Wall, you know, the actor from Marlis, goes like, what are you talking about? And, and Brian goes, well, Steve's parents died a couple days apart. <laughs> like he's whispering, died a couple days apart and uh, it's very sad. And he, he's, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Robert goes, okay. I need to ask a question. He goes, as a Jew, I need to know, was there a discount <laughs> on the funeral and the viewing and the burial? And Brian looks at him and goes, are you out of your mind? He turns to me. I'm laughing hysterically. I go, Robert, I gave him a big hug. I said, that's exactly what I needed to hear. And I don't know the answer to the question, but I'm going to find out. And I thought... In, in death, there's humor, and it was, it was like, it was phenomenal. If your mom hadn't passed away, do you feel your dad would have died on Saturday? No. No. No, no, no. No. Not at all. He never thought he'd be the last one around, like the one left. He was, it was, he was done. And by the way, happily. Anyway, so my friends from high school came in on Sunday and they go, you cheap bastard, what? You couldn't have your mom laid out in a, in a private room. I go, sorry to break the news to you today, but my dad died yesterday and that's him. <laughs> so, 
you know, I always remember the story about Bill Murray like, talking about his father's funeral, like we're all seeing the car making jokes. And look, my parents had a great life and they, they were, they had a great sense of humor. And, uh, you know, so I didn't, <laughs> when your mom and dad pass away in the same week, if you don't look at it and say, holy cow, there's some irony to this because they've been their whole life together and this was meant to be. And you have to hope if you're spiritual at all, that they're in a better place and their spirit still is around. And so it is what it is. So I, um, my two older sisters were pretty smart and, you know, had a career path. And I, I give my mom and dad credit because even though my mom, she basically raised all seven kids and like, she never, she was a stay at home mom. I think my sisters were raised to kind of go out into the real world and it was never, it was always expected they would get a good, you know, go to school and they were smart and what have you. So I just, for whatever reason, didn't click in the classroom and, uh, you know, and I was interested in sports and I just didn't find anything I was particularly interested in. But so my guidance counselor, I went to see him and he basically said to me that he, he didn't believe that I was college material and that I should probably consider a trade school. <laughs> and, you know, your first reaction is like, F you. And then if you really think about it, okay, now we've hit the moment in the, <laughs> we've hit the moment in the episode where uh, the lead character needs to take some responsibility for their own life. And so I, it was get serious time. Cause up until that point in your life, it kind of, like you, you go to grade school, then you go to high school, but the rest now, be, now there's the options, right? And, uh, you know, my mom, I can say my dad came, parents were, you know, worked in a coal mine. My grandfather worked in a coal mine, came from Scranton, Pennsylvania. My mom's side of the family, you know, that my, my grandfather owned a restaurant and very, you know, hardworking. It was time to make a career decision and, and I didn't want, and my, it was, my dad didn't go to college because, you know, for whatever reason is he didn't, it wasn't because he wasn't smart enough and it was more about money and things in his life. But he, it was, everybody in our family was going to college and we were all going to pay our own way and do all that. So it probably at the time was the best thing that ever happened to me because it got me off my ass and realized that, you know, had to deal with the real world. And um, as I guess I was angry to it to a point, but if I really were honest about it, I'd probably say it was the best thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> it was real life stuff, you know? Even when you tried to get internships, you got rejected. Well, that's a good story. So so I was in college. Uh, it was my senior year in, at the University of Delaware, and I played lacrosse. And, uh, you know, again, I, I was doing fine in my major, and I loved television. It's just all the stuff I had to take. I wasn't so, wasn't so hot. So I, in the winter, early uh, January of 1978, I was calling around for internships. And I called the station in Philadelphia. And it was WPHL-TV. Got the woman on the phone. And I said, my name's Steve Mosco, and I love the business. And boy, I, you know, if I get an internship, man, I will do anything. And I say anything, I mean, I will empty the trash cans. I will... I will do whatever I have to do. I just want to get some real life experience and blah, blah, blah. Got it? What's your grade point average? 
I said, well, you know, in the major it's this, but overall, she said, at WPHL TV, we pride ourselves in getting the best <laughs> and da da da. Boom, phone's hung up. I go, man, this isn't gonna be easy. <laughs> so, long story short, um, you know, when I left, I actually, when I started applying for jobs, uh, when I left college, I had to borrow a suit, I had to borrow a car. I mean, I didn't have anything. And uh, I went to Baltimore, just hand, handed out resumes, and I went to uh, WBFF TV in Baltimore. And the uh, woman at the front desk said, I said, can you just give this to somebody? Because I just want to get in the business, blah, blah, blah. She said, well, you'd be great in sales. I said, great. Like, like tell me about that. <laughs> well, they sell advertising time. And I said, I'm in. Like, when can I meet that guy? Long story short, I, my first job was in radio, but my first TV job was at that station three months later. And it turns out, uh, and I only found this out later, uh, when I was inducted in the Broadcasting Cable Hall of Fame, my dad found that woman, and it turned out she was subbing for somebody who was on bathroom break. <laughs> so if there's a story in that, like, you never know, you never know. But so to get back to the PHL thing, so I go through my career, I'm in a TV station, radio station and TV station in Baltimore, another TV station in Baltimore. Then I moved to Philadelphia as the general sales manager of a station. And then the guy that owned that station, Dudley Taft, uh, used to have Taft Broadcasting, uh, sold his company and was going to buy a couple TV stations, one of which was in Philadelphia. So I was going to go from one station, Philly, as a general sales manager to the new one, WPHL, as the station manager and part owner. That was the same station that rejected me as an intern nine years earlier that was by the way that was right when they had, had like a stock market crash and like in october anyway january first week of january we take over the station and we all congregate in the parking lot and we're walking in and we're the management team's going to take over and i and i was going in as a station manager and i walked to the front desk and I said where is uh so-and-so <laughs> she's right down the hall i said to my group i'll be right back so before we officially kind of came in i walked down the hall I went in this woman's office. She's sitting there because they're all waiting for us. I said, uh, said her name? And she said, yes. I, she says, welcome. We're so happy to have you. I go, are you? <laughs> I said, well, let me remind you of a call in January of 1978. I'm sure I sound like a crazy person. But I said, I called you in January of 78. She said, like, what are you talking about? I said, and I asked you for an internship. She goes, what I say? I go, you didn't say much because you hung up on me once you heard my great point. I said, here's the deal. I said, there are a lot of kids that aren't particularly great in the classroom, but they're paying their way through school. They have, sec they have two or three jobs. There's a lot of stuff going on in their life. And you know what? Those are the people who were figure stuff out for us. Now, do we want the release? Of course we want. We want everybody. But you can't dismiss these kids that might bring something special. I said, that was me. I said, so today we're going to change this stupid rule and we're going to figure out how we bring in kids, you know, who work at McDonald's and have shitty jobs and pay their way through school who are get will get stuff done. And uh, so that was my that was my intro to the uh, 
running a TV station. So talk about in this trajectory of getting to where you were going to go. I know that earlier in your career, you know, you were trying to get things done and you had the style about you that not only was huggable, lovable, but you do some crazy things. <laughs> so uh, when I was at, so I was at WMAR TV in Baltimore and Arnie Kleiner, who actually uh, used to run Channel 7 here in town, uh, who was my mentor and just a fantastic guy. He was the new GM at the station in Baltimore, Channel 2, WMAR in Baltimore. I was like the 23-year-old local sales manager who was so far over his skis but kind of made it work. I was his guy and, uh, you know, Arnie just came in and he needed a new car. You know, because the general managers need to drive the nice pretty cars. They said, what do you want? He said, well, I need a, uh, a I'll never forget this, like a, like a red wine colored Jaguar. I said, okay, we're going to go to dinner with this guy, Bill Schaefer, who was the quintessential car dealer, like bleach blonde hair, you know, a guy from like self-made guy. He had a, a diamond studded necklace, which had like diamonds on a dollar, like that dollar bill sign silk shirts with i mean it it, 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 it kind of like a thinner version of jack ward in that movie used cars you know so i said we're going to go to dinner with, with bill and we'll talk about it and we went to this restaurant chipperelli's in towson maryland this is back when we all had probably drank too much and whatever but um we go have dinner and we're talking and in, the, in those days the way they were car deals they, they call them trade deals. So the car cost, I'll never forget, it's like $40,000. So the trade deal would be typically you would give that, you would get the car and then give them $40,000 in advertising time, right? Well, this guy wanted three times in advertising. So he wanted $120,000 for the $40,000 car. So, you know, blaming Sambuca shots into the night, Arnie says to Bill, he said, look, I'm tired of this bullshit. Here's the deal. Steve's going to arm wrestle you. If he wins, um, <laughs> it's $40,000. That's what we're giving you. If you if he loses, you'll get the 120. He goes, fine. We literally clear the table off. And then we're in the middle of a restaurant. And I'm like, tw I'm 23 years old. This guy's, I don't know, older and not particularly strong. So I humored him a little bit and boom and we got the deal. <laughs> it, honestly, it didn't dawn on me till later in life that that was an $80,000 arm wrestling match. <laughs> but, you know, that's kind of what you did. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was, I, by the way, local television, I, I loved at the time. And, uh, you know, for me, just to, it was just great to, you know, I, I loved it. I mean, it was just my age and, Arnie was great. There's a couple of those stories. I remember one time I actually, there was a guy named Jim Mathis who ran, he was like the largest, he was the most, it was the biggest agency in Baltimore. Uh, it, it, his partner was uh, Alan Charles, who's Josh Charles' dad. And anyway, uh, we were <laughs> we were trying to uh, make a deal on an Orioles sponsorship. And he, you know, this guy said, like he was like the most powerful guy in the business. I'm just a kid trying to make it. He goes, the only way I do that deal if you guzzled that bowl of uh, salsa. I said, so you're telling me if I drink that 
we have the deal. And it was for SK Meats. I'll never forget this. He goes, yeah, sure. Did it, put it down, said, congratulations, you're a new sponsor of the Orioles. <laughs> and we got the deal. The transition, I, I graduated from college on a Saturday and started my first job on a Monday. So I went from having longer hair, T-shirts and shorts, wearing a suit, like in two days. And that ride continued for 39 years till last June. So, you know, it was pretty amazing, just kind of that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I knew it was time to kind of, so, you know, I got married 37 years ago. I've been, you know, so I... I kind of hit adult life pretty quickly after college, so... Uh, so how did Sony find out about you? How did you get that gig? When I was running Channel 17 in Philadelphia, uh, we were one of the biggest buyers of programming for, uh, at the time, uh, Columbia TriStar Television. So we bought Who's the Boss, we bought a lot of the movie packages, and um, and married with children. And, and at the time, I was just... You know, I had the job I always wanted, and uh, there was a guy that worked for MCA, Jim Krause. So Jim Krause was like a, a, a syndication MCA at the time, and he said to me, he goes, look, if you're ever, if you're ever inter- if you ever get bored with this, you should let us know because we'd be interested in talking to you. And, oh, wow, that's interesting. So I remember having dinner with Barry Thurston, who ran, you know, the syndication at the time, at, at, which was then Columbia. Coca-Cola still owned them, I think. Anyway, I said to Barry, I said, hey, you know, I'm thinking about making a career change in case there's anything on your end. So long story short, Barry at the time, Barry was also a station guy that got into syndication. And he felt, which was smart, that, you know, he wanted people that weren't as much, he had salespeople for sure, but to have people who are actually buyers that could sell. So I came into it knowing the buying side as well as the sales side. So uh, you didn't have to interview for the job. They offered you the job. I don't think there was much of an interview process, much of a mating period. So, but it was good. I remember we, we had a great house in Philadelphia. We lived out in the country and I'll never forget. I called my wife after scraping ice off my windshield at six in the morning and sliding off the road two times, coming down the hill to get on the Schuylkill Expressway to then sit in traffic on the Schuylkill Expressway for another hour. I, I remember saying to her, I can't do, either we're moving to Florida or we're moving to California, but I, I'm not sure I can deal with the weather anymore. So I actually can't, I know when I came out here, I mean, I thought I was young, but I, I didn't move to Los Angeles till I was 37. And I came out here as like a guy that came up to the station side. So it, I don't think it was, it wasn't like, I mean, think of 37 today, it's like you're the old guy in the room, you know, if you're, I mean, I, and I was starting at 37 out here, so. In your 24 years at Sony, who was somebody who was in a similar position at another company or network that you always aspired to have the kind of success that that person had and the way they ran their company and the way they ran things you always had the utmost respect for yeah well i think it's a combination of people like i always thought i thought less i mean less moon biz. yeah so like less was a studio person i think he you know was you know he did amazing stuff with, you know at the studio and then whenever cbs but I, I just from afar just watched what he did and you know, just amazing leader, attention to detail, 
never too far from what was important. Um, you know, I think Bob Iger, you know, another one that just, you know, started off on local TV. I think Bob was weatherman. Uh, but, you know, I just watched what he did and, uh, you know, it feels like the most obvious thing in the world, but he had to really work to get the job he has today. And he's, you know, one of the most successful CEOs in the last couple of decades doing what he's done over at, at uh, Disney. Like Ron Myers, just a, you know, what I watched Ron transitioning from what he did with the agency to over at Universal and just so respected and beloved. And, you know, another guy that I think you look at his demeanor, you know, the guy's beloved by the town and uh but he's tough so i watch them and I'm, i i hate mentioning names because you always leave out people but uh you know those three in particular and there's there's a few there's lots more i'd be remiss if i didn't talk about something before we get into the final round of things here a lot of times you always say as a leader or anywhere in your life that you can control your own destiny right you can figure out how to make everything work but every once in a while, there's an event that happens that's a once in 20 year or once in 25 year thing. And in your particular case and your company's case, it was the Sony hack. So how did you handle that? No, I, I think it was the ultimate test. Uh, and then believe me, there was just some surreal moments through this whole thing, as you can imagine. I think worst thing about it is was like the just the unknown i mean i felt like i was pretty good at you know managing my thoughts in emails but you just don't know i mean you don't know what you could have said or done and i know who i was as a human being so i knew there's certain things absolutely people wouldn't uh find and uh or they there wouldn't be any surprises that way but you know you have comments about people it's kind of like uh you, you know certain people fart but you just don't want to hear it you know, and it's like, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, like that wasn't bad, but it's like, wow, I just feel like they're looking, they're, they're reading stuff they shouldn't read, you know, and, and it's, and it's, it was difficult. So the unknown part was tough. Um, I'll give you the negative first. I think I was concerned about my family because there was a lot of personal stuff in there between my kids and myself, which got, it was out there and, um, you know, the one funny story is I sent some ex-FBI agents out to my house to make sure there wasn't any malware that got into my home stuff. And I remember getting a call from this ex-FBI agent who said to me that um, I guess they looked at my wife's phone, they went to my daughter, and they said, we need your computer and phone. <laughs> she said, I don't care what problems my dad's having with the Koreans. You're not getting my phone or my computer to shut the door. <laughs> and the guy called me and said, what do you want me to do? I said, leave now. I said, I'll live. I can't. I'm not upsetting my daughter. I'll deal with the consequences. But it was hard. You know, look, every day it was hard. I mean, it's as hard a thing as you can imagine dealing with times 10. Your brain just burns because, you know, you, you spend the day where you have your own issues, like your own thoughts that you have to deal with. And at the same time, there'll be people crying outside my office because someone's hacking their bank account or someone, or they signed up for the, you know, the protection services and all these things pop up that would have been there anyway that say they're trying to get, they got their social security number, whatever. So, you know, you're managing kind of the emotional roller coaster of your employee as well as your own. That was really hard. Uh, 
I made a determination early on that, you know, you mentioned earlier about demeanor and all you know, those things that every day I was going to come in and I wanted people to know that everything was going to be okay. I wasn't sure, but I, I wanted to make sure like I was like a rock that way. And, um, you know, you, you have your moments, but I knew at that moment in time, that's when you kind of have to step up and be a, a leader in that, that case. And, uh, yeah, so it was hard. The, the most amazing thing to me, though, is the, and I'll forever be proud of this, is the fact that the, the people that worked in television, I thought, were so resilient and like had such a can-do attitude, like, let's just get through this. And when it was all said and done, the company did just fine through it all in terms of results. You know, I was a little angry one day. I was watching CNN and I saw this person say, oh, the studio shut down. They're paralyzed. Meantime, I look out my window. I see Jeff Garland walking to the Goldberg set. I see Harry Friedman on the Wheel of Fortune Jeopardy set. I mean, life went on. It was just hard. And, um, you know, I, I just think uh, the, hard, <laughs> the hardest days for me, but it was a weird, weirdly a relief was when I got a call from my head of security and he said, I just want to break the news to you that they've dumped all your emails. Like it was a ridiculous number. And I said, they said, you want to come over and take a look? I said, is there anything I can do? And they said, no. I said, nope, I'm fine. It was almost like I, there was this piece that came over, which I can't even explain, which was weird. The worst one though, I don't know why this felt worse, when they physically came up and took my phone because they were worried that I some of the malware got into my iPhone and... Um, it was just weird because I had a lot of personal photos and things and that weren't on my uh, server, but it just feels as close to being violated physically as I can imagine because it, it, it went deeper than that. Like in your like the psychological makeup of who you are as a person and you feel like you've, everything about it was just like, ugh. And, and then it was just a confusion, like who did it and, you know, why is the, I mean, how's the president reacting? Don't people realize like how serious this is? And, and the weird thing was the fact it was all, it was, and I guess the hardest part of this was just looking back at it and thinking, my God, I mean, and I, look, I felt bad for Amy and people. Amy Pascal. Everybody's got personal emails. But the fact that here we were part of this terrorist act, but yet people were taking these, um, emails and basically you know everybody's having a good laugh on our account and uh my son actually you know when he lives in china he would get calls from people about oh i saw your dad's email and he'd say you know what i'm not talking to you anymore because i always said we were always laugh like you know people read the emails like okay if you walked in my office and there was like a folder in my office where you just assume you can grab it and read it but it was hard but i'll tell you what and this is my view of life and through everything else I deal with. If I survive that and still have my sanity and a smile on my face, um, I think I can pretty much deal with anything. There were moments and there were some friends where I thought like, when is this fucking going to end? Uh, I'm a little bit of a hippie at heart. So I, I look at the world like in a peaceful way, I guess, in some ways. But I think back like what it was like, and you can't even make a comparison, but you watch... I was watching the, um, oh gosh, the Mel Gibson movie. Um, Hacksaw Ridge. And I mean, you think like what people have, like what people have really dealt with in their life, where it was life and death or protecting their family or fighting for it. You know what? If I had to deal with a couple of bad emails and some bullshit, you know what? I, I'm a big boy. I can take that. And 
you know what? It, it wasn't fatal. It was I viewed it as character building. And and not that everybody listens, but I thought it what a great lesson for me to go tell people, be careful what you put in the text, be careful what you put in an email. Be careful in this world of what you put out. All right, ladies and gentlemen, if you know this podcast, you know I've talked a lot about the documentary I worked on called I Killed JFK, and I put a lot of effort into this documentary. And finally, after many, many years, my friends at Screen Vision and Chaos Connect have worked together to distribute the film and get a special event theatrical release in selected theaters all across North America. And I'm very excited about it. It's going to be May 31st, two days after John F. Kennedy's 100th birthday. And it features an incredible story about the only man who's ever admitted to killing JFK. Uh, the tickets will be on sale on the website ikilledjfk.com, and they'll be up soon. And I greatly appreciate it if you check it out. I know you'll like it a lot, and you'll find it extraordinary like I did. ikilledjfk.com. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention a name. Tell me whatever comes to your mind. Could be one word, could be a sentence, whatever it is. Michael J. Fox. He did a comedy for us, you know, on NBC a couple years ago. He's just an amazing guy. And, and uh, when I was growing up, he was like the guy, you know, and uh, family ties. So, yeah. Jerry Seinfeld. Love Jerry. I, I think one of the great comics of this and all generations. And, I you know, become a good friend. And I, I'm amazed. I saw him perform in Oakland a couple of weeks ago. He's as good as he's ever been, if not. I mean, he's phenomenal. And one of the great experiences of my career was when that's just working on comedians and cars getting coffee. And, um, you know, just kind of laughing our way through. Let's see what this turns out to be. And and him watching him have one of the great, just having such joy and working on every aspect of it and um, and having it go from this little science project as we called it to this amazing hit you know and uh, yeah he's and and I love the fact the reason I'm attracted to comics like Kevin James and Jerry and these guys you know com comedians stand-up comedians are such hard-working folks I mean I was I was talking to Kevin James and we were, where he was He's friends with Billy Joel and talking about when you when Billy Joel is a hit, you can play that hit for 50 years and everybody's gonna dance to it. When you're a comedian, you tell a funny joke, they don't want they they've heard that. They want the next joke. So you constantly have to be reinventing yourself. Kevin James. Terrific guy. He's um I've been I was it's been so great watching him go from being a having one of the great sitcoms in history with King of Queens to building a movie career. Um, to coming back and doing this great, you know, doing Kevin Can Wait for CBS. Uh, everybody loves him. He's like every man person. He's a great father. He's a great husband. He's got a bunch of kids. And, you know, when we, we did Kevin Can Wait for CBS, one of the big priorities for him was being able to sleep in his own bed at night. So the show's produced out in Long Island and Beth Page, and he sleeps in his own bed at night. And, uh, you know, that's why I was talking about earlier about, like, how do you promote creativity is you have a calm clear mind and uh 
I think we we gave, he got that by being able to produce a show out in um, out in out Long Island. Magic recipe to TV and your mantra in the business. <laughs> I, my mantra in the business is is be authentic. Uh, realize it's about the uh, your people are the, your greatest asset and never lose the passion for the product um, the secret so I you know I don't know I, I just think surrounding yourself with people who love it you know that are passionate about it because people don't you can't fake this you know you can't bullshit your way through it you know and I'm not suggesting you do this with movies but it, it's interesting to me it's like it's great to see this kind of crossover between movies and television. But in order to create a hit television show, you've got to be relentless over like a number of years. And you know, if you have a great idea for a movie, it's two hours long, you're in and you're out. It might be, a, you know, it could be Fast and Furious and you've got eight of them. But TV, for sure, if you're going to make money at a hit, you need to do it over multiple seasons, 10 to 22 a year. That requires real dedication and passion and vision and, and lots of things on the part of a lot of people. So you you can't fake this. You can't be half pregnant. And I, I I always my love of television. I always love the movie business, but I love television because I just there's a type of person that's in it that's just totally different from anything else in the business because they know that it's a grind, but something we all love. And um, you know, I, I had breakfast last week with Jeff Garland, and Jeff's a great guy. But he did the Goldbergs. This year, he did Curb Your Enthusiasm, which people don't realize how involved he is in that. And then he did this movie uh, uh, for Netflix, which I went to the premiere last week. And I go, like you're like the James Brown of comedy. I mean, and and you you know, and, and I I watch, I look at what Jerry's doing, and like what Kevin's doing, and I look at how hard Adam Sandler works, and that like there's just a work ethic amongst people in television and comedy. And, I mean, all parts of it, but that you just have to admire, you know, and, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's hard work, but it, my God, thank God we're able to do it, so. Your proudest moment in show business? Oh, probably the day I got promoted to chairman of television. Like I said, it was, uh, I was happy for the people in the television company of Sony, because it, it was, I think, the first time that the head of TV and film were kind of on equal par. And Tom Rothman's a great guy. And your biggest disappointment in show business and how you use it to fuel yourself to the next level. Don't ask me why. I can't get rid of it. But, you know, we had this idea, you know, with Quincy Jones at the time. Vibe the talk show? It was a slam dunk. Chris Spencer was the host. God bless Chris. We threw him into something where he was unprepared to deal with. But he's a great guy. But what happened was... We, were, we weren't buttoned up as we should have been on a lot of levels. Everybody and their mother jumped in, if you remember, like Magic did a show and Keenan Every Wayans. Like all of a sudden they went from being no shows reaching that audience, which was a broad audience, but you know, to like there being three or four. It, it, and the greed and everything involved just destroyed the opportunity for everybody. And it could have been done better. There's a lot of can go, but but that I thought there was ever slam dunk in the world, it was that. What advice do you have for the young executive 
who wants to get to the next level like you and what advice do you have for the young actor the young comic or the young person who's on the other side of how to get to the next level since you've been in all those rooms my advice for both would be the following which is i found i sought out some of the people who had been in the business for a long time to get their wisdom and advice so people like john Kelly who ran sony people like howard west george shapiro people like sandy wernick who bernie brillstein i mean there are people in the bit you know i got to know mel brooks and it, you know there are you can't take for granted the fact that there are people, doesn't matter when they came up to the business, that their knowledge and wisdom is so helpful to all of us. So I sought those folks out. And I would just say to someone coming up to the business, best advice I can give them is don't be cynical. Seek out people that have had success, have had failures, and find out from them like what worked, what didn't work, what advice. In the end, like I said, it's, it's do that, be passionate about the work, you know, and have a life. Because the one thing that, I mean, I, I'm very lucky that I have a great family that loves me. I love them. They're normal. And I don't think you can manage these careers at these high levels if your family's not right. You know, so it's that's been a huge priority for me. And I probably, in some regards, sacrifice some things. Because like we didn't do it, my wife and I socially like didn't chase every party on weekends, whatever. We kind of spent a lot of time making sure the kids were good. Doesn't seem to have hurt me, but that's hard for some people. And but I find that like, and that doesn't mean every marriage has to be perfect, or, but like it's got to be a priority. However that works, as much as your career is a priority, because you got it. My whole thing with life is you got to have balance, whether it's eating, exercising managing stress whatever if you're tilted one way or the other it tends to not work steve mosco you are my hero today thank you so much you were amazing <laughs> ever done a podcast before i'm ashamed to say i haven't no i'm proud to be your first thank this you amazing thank you so much Appreciate it. this is industry standard with me barry katz if you like the show tell all your friends and if you don't like the show tell, tell all your friends, friends. Uh, tell his friends <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section, and one of these people will be a lucky winner, and they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Mr. T, comedian. All right. I'd love to see what that guy looks like. December 22nd, 2014. The heading says informative, instructional, and entertaining five stars. Thank you, Mr. T, comedian. I appreciate it. And he says, I listen to all the top podcasts, and this is my favorite. Barry has an encyclopedic knowledge about the history of stand-up. Besides that, what separates this from other shows is the positive tone of the host and guest. There is a spirit of we made it, and you can too. And here's how throughout the episodes. Keep it going. Wow. Mr. T, I never knew you were so eloquent. Thank you so much, Mr. T Comedian. 
Congratulations. Special thanks to our new sponsor, AquaTrue, with the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. Check it out. Go to industrystandardwater.com. Takes you directly to their website. Type in the code 100. Save yourself $100. I have one of these. It's amazing. Start turning your tap water into the best tasting water. Industrystandardwater.com. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, you're going for. Life is for the dreamer. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.